Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. De Futilitate On Futility by C.S. Lewis Part 2 One popular distinction is between what is called scientific thought and other kinds of thought. It is widely believed that scientific thought does put us in touch with reality, whereas moral or metaphysical thought does not. On this view, when we say that the universe is a space-time continuum, we are saying something about reality. Whereas if we say that the universe is futile, or that men ought to have a living wage, we are only describing our own subjective feelings. That is why, in modern stories of what the Americans call scientifictional type, stories about unknown species who inhabit other planets or the depths of the sea, these creatures are usually pictured as being wholly devoid of our moral standards, but as accepting our scientific standards. The implication is, of course, that scientific thought, being objective, will be the same for all creatures that can reason at all whereas moral thought, being merely a subjective thing like one's tastes in food, might be expected to vary from species to species. But the distinction thus made between scientific and non-scientific thoughts will not easily bear the weight we are attempting to put on it. The cycle of scientific thought is from experiment to hypothesis and thence to verification and a new hypothesis. Experiment means sense experiences specially arranged. Verification involves inference. If X existed, then, under conditions Y, we should have the experience Z. We then produce the conditions Y, and Z appears. We thence infer the existence of X. Now, it is clear that the only part of this process which assures us of any reality outside ourselves is precisely the inference, if X, then Z. Or, conversely, since Z, therefore X. The other parts of the process, namely hypothesis and experiment, cannot, by themselves, give us any assurance. The hypothesis is, admittedly, a mental construction, something, as they say, inside our own heads. And the experiment is a state of our own consciousness. It is, say, a dial reading, or a color seen if you heat the fluid in the test tube. That is to say, it is a state of visual sensation. The apparatus used in the experiment is believed to exist outside our own minds only on the strength of an inference. It is inferred as the cause of our visual sensations. I am not at all suggesting that the inference is a bad one. I am not a subjective idealist, and I fully believe that the distinction we make between an experiment in a dream and an experiment in a laboratory is a sound one. I am only pointing out that the material or external world in general is an inferred world and that, therefore, particular experiments, far from taking us out of the magic circle of inference into some supposed direct contact with reality, are themselves evidential 
only as parts of that great inference. The physical sciences, then, depend on the validity of logic, just as much as metaphysics or mathematics. If popular thought feels science to be different from all other kinds of knowledge, because science is experimentally verifiable, popular thought is mistaken. Experimental verification is not a new kind of assurance coming in to supply the deficiencies of mere logic. We should, therefore, abandon the distinction between scientific and non-scientific thought. The proper distinction is between logical and non-logical thought. I mean the proper distinction for our present purpose, that purpose being to find whether there is any class of thoughts which has objective value, which is not merely a fact about how the human cortex behaves. For that purpose, we can make no distinction between science and other logical exercises of thought. For if logic is discredited, science must go down along with it. It therefore follows that all knowledge, whatever, depends on the validity of inference. If, in principle, the feeling of certainty we have when we say, because A is B, therefore C must be D, is an illusion. If it reveals only how our cortex has to work, and not how realities external to us must really be, then we can know nothing whatever. I say in principle, because, of course, through inattention or fatigue, we often make false inferences. And while we make them, they feel as certain as the sound ones. But then, they are always corrigible by further reasoning. That does not matter. What would matter would be if inference itself, even apart from accidental errors, were a merely subjective phenomenon. Now let me go back a bit. We began by asking whether our feeling of futility could be set aside as a merely subjective and irrelevant result which the universe has produced in human brains. I postponed answering that question until we had attempted a larger one. I asked whether, in general, human thought could be set aside as irrelevant to the real universe and merely subjective. I now claim to have found the answer to this larger question. The answer is that at least one kind of thought, logical thought, cannot be subjective and irrelevant to the real universe. For unless thought is valid, we have no reason to believe in the real universe. We reach our knowledge of the universe only by inference. The very object to which our thought is supposed to be irrelevant depends on the relevance of our thought. A universe, whose only claim to be believed in, rests on the validity of inference, must not start telling us that inference is invalid. That would really be a bit too nonsensical. I conclude, then, that logic is a real insight into the way in which real things have to exist. In other words, the laws of thought are also the laws of things, of things in the remotest space and the remotest time. This admission seems to me completely unavoidable, and it has very momentous consequences. In the first place, it rules out any materialistic account of thinking. We are compelled to admit 
between the thoughts of a terrestrial astronomer and the behavior of matter several light years away, that particular relation which we call truth. But this relation has no meaning at all if we try to make it exist between the matter of the star and the astronomer's brain, considered as a lump of matter. The brain may be in all sorts of relations to the star, no doubt. It is in a spatial relation, and a time relation, and a quantitative relation. But to talk of one bit of matter as being true about another bit of matter seems to me to be nonsense. It might conceivably turn out to be the case that every atom in the universe thought, and thought truly, about every other. But that relation between any two atoms would be something quite distinct from the physical relations between them. In saying that thinking is not matter, I am not suggesting that there is anything mysterious about it. In one sense, thinking is the simplest thing in the world. We do it all day long. We know what it is like far better than we know what matter is like. Thought is what we start from. The simple, intimate, immediate datum. Matter is the inferred thing. The mystery. In the second place, to understand that logic must be valid is to see at once that this thing we all know, this thought, this mind, cannot in fact be really alien to the nature of the universe. Or, putting it the other way round, the nature of the universe cannot be really alien to reason. We find that matter always obeys the same laws which our logic obeys. When logic says a thing must be so, nature always agrees. No one can suppose that this can be due to a happy coincidence. A great many people think that it is due to the fact that nature produced the mind. But on the assumption that nature is herself mindless, this provides no explanation. To be the result of a series of mindless events is one thing. To be a kind of plan or true account of the laws according to which those mindless events happened is quite another. Thus, the Gulf Stream produces all sorts of results. For instance, the temperature of the Irish Sea. What it does not produce is maps of the Gulf Stream. But if logic as we find it operative in our own minds, is really a result of mindless nature, then it is a result as improbable as that. The laws whereby logic obliges us to think turn out to be the laws according to which every event in space and time must happen. The man who thinks this is an ordinary or probable result does not really understand. It is as if cabbages, in addition to resulting from the laws of botany, also gave lectures in that subject. Or as if, when I knocked out my pipe, the ashes arranged themselves into letters which read, We are the ashes of a knocked-out pipe. But if the validity of knowledge cannot be explained in that way, and if perpetual happy coincidence throughout the whole of recorded time is out of the question, then surely we must seek the real explanation elsewhere. I want to put this other explanation in the broadest possible terms, and am anxious that you should not imagine I am trying to prove anything more or more definite than I really am. And perhaps the safest way of putting it is this, that we must give up talking about human reason. 
insofar as thought is merely human, merely a characteristic of one particular biological species, it does not explain our knowledge. Where thought is strictly rational, it must be, in some odd sense, not ours, but cosmic, or super-cosmic. It must be something not shut up inside our heads, but already out there, in the universe, or behind the universe, either as objective, as material nature, or more objective still. Unless all that we take to be knowledge is an illusion, we must hold that in thinking we are not reading rationality into an irrational universe, but responding to a rationality with which the universe has always been saturated. There are all sorts of different ways in which you can develop this position, either into an idealist metaphysics or a theology, into a theistic or a pantheistic or dualist theology. I am not tonight going to trace those possible developments, still less to defend the particular one which I myself accept. I am only going to consider what light this conception, in its most general form, throws on the question of futility. At first sight, it might seem to throw very little. The universe, as we have observed it, does not appear to be in any sense good as a whole, though it throws up some particular details which are very good indeed. Strawberries, and the sea and sunrise, and the song of the birds. But these, quantitatively considered, are so brief and small compared with the huge tracts of empty space and the enormous masses of uninhabitable matter that we might well regard them as lucky accidents. We might therefore conclude that, though the ultimate reality is logical, it has no regard for values, or at any rate for the values we recognize, and so we could still accuse it of futility. But there is a real difficulty about accusing it of anything, an accusation always implies a standard. You call a man a bad golf player because you know what bogey is. You call a boy's answer to a sum wrong because you know the right answer. You call a man cruel or idle because you have in mind a standard of kindness or diligence. And while you are making the accusation, you have to accept the standard as a valid one. If you begin to doubt the standard, you automatically doubt the cogency of your accusation. If you are skeptical about grammar, you must be equally skeptical about your condemnation of bad grammar. If nothing is certainly right, then of course it follows that nothing is certainly wrong. And that is the snag about what I would call heroic pessimism. I mean the kind of pessimism you get in Swinburne. Hardy in Shelley's Prometheus, and which is magnificently summed up in Hausman's line, quote, Whatever brute and blackguard made the world. Do not imagine that I lack sympathy with that kind of poetry. On the contrary, at one time of my life I tried very hard to write it, and, as far as quantity goes, I succeeded. I produced reams of it. But there is a catch. If a brute and blackguard made the world, then he also made our minds. If he made our minds, he also made that very standard in them whereby we judge him to be a brute and a blackguard. 
And how can we trust a standard which comes from such a brutal and blaggardly source? If we reject him, we ought also to reject all his works. But one of his works is this very moral standard by which we reject him. If we accept this standard, then we are really implying that he is not a brute and blaggard. If we reject it, then we have thrown away the only instrument by which we can condemn him. Heroic anti-theism thus has a contradiction in its center. You must trust the universe in one respect, even in order to condemn it in every other. What happens to our sense of values is, in fact, exactly what happens to our logic. If it is a purely human sense of values, a biological byproduct in a certain species with no relevance to reality, then we cannot, having once realized this, continue to use it as the ground for what are meant to be serious criticisms of the nature of things. Nor can we continue to attach any importance to the efforts we make towards realizing our ideas of value. A man cannot continue to make sacrifices for the good of posterity if he really believes that his concern for the good of posterity is simply an irrational, subjective taste of his own on the same level with his fondness for pancakes or his dislike for spam. I am well aware that many whose philosophy involves this subjective view of values do in fact sometimes make great efforts for the cause of justice or freedom. But that is because they forget their philosophy. When they really get to work, they think that justice is really good, objectively obligatory, whether anyone likes it or not. They remember their opposite philosophical belief only when they go back to the lecture room. Our sense that the universe is futile, and our sense of a duty to make those parts of it we can reach less futile, both really imply a belief that it is not, in fact, futile at all. A belief that values are rooted in reality, outside ourselves, that the reason in which the universe is saturated is also moral. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.